Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. If there was hype and there was excitement surrounding the Odell Beckham Jr. contract, that was still nothing compared to the buildup to the new Aaron Rodgers contract. The reason I say that, Beckham was hoping to smash records for wide receivers. Rodgers, though, had a chance to break records for every single football player, and he did not disappoint. Former teammate James Jones had the news first. And at the risk of turning this into some sort of CNBC moment, here are the deets. Signing bonus, 57.5 mil. That breaks Matthew Stafford's record. According to PFT, the base value of that contract is 176 mil over six years. That's an average of just under 30 mil per year. A new money average of 33.5 mil. Both of those are records. Now, in terms of the contract, as always, when somebody signs a new contract, there are a couple of competing ideas. Number one, it's really none of our business, right? It's none of our business. And number two, is he worth the money? Is he worth that contract? And the answer to the first is, yeah, it really is none of our business, what he makes. On the other hand, contracts have become news, so let's go ahead and cut to the chase. Hell yes, he's worth it. Hell yes, he's worth it. And after turning this into CNBC, I'm not going to go all stat head on you and run down Aaron's numbers because you don't need numbers to see this guy's greatness. You need eyeballs. That's it. I don't have to run down his red zone efficiency or his spin rate or his adjusted net yards per pass attempt because several times every single year, you see something that he does that you have never seen before. The Hail Marys, the pass against the Cowboys, the passes where his feet are not set, the passes where he's off balance, but somehow still on balance. The impossible just isn't possible with Rodgers. It's actually the normal. It's expected. You tell me, quick, what's the most exciting play in the NFL? Kickoff returns? No. Punt returns? Nope. The correct answer is when Rodgers inevitably gets the defense to jump off sides and then he gets a free play because you know he's going to take a chance, you know he's going to air it out, and you know he's going to make some defensive back look really stupid. I mean, for all the excitement about Patrick Mahomes and his arm, and the excitement is justifiable, Rodgers has been firing his arm cannon for years, and the guy makes it look easy every single time. Let me put it to you another way. Is there anybody who means more to their team and their franchise than Aaron Rodgers? I mean, sure, Tom Brady is having the greatest career that a quarterback's ever had. And Brady's got the chance to keep adding to that. But you can't tell me that Tom Brady means more to the Patriots than Aaron Rodgers does the Packers. As an example, when Brady went down, the Patriots still won with Matt Castle. When Rodgers goes down, the Packers don't win. Hell, they don't even compete. Aaron Rodgers is the Packers. And this is not to say that they go as he goes. Hell, he carries them wherever they go. When they win, it's because of him. And frequently, despite a bunch of other things. So how do you celebrate a deal like that? How do you celebrate the biggest deal ever? And I understand that it's not always going to be like that. In fact, it might not be the biggest deal for very long, but it is right now. So how do you celebrate a deal like that? By rolling in money? Nope. By rolling in denim into the Packers' welcome back luncheon. That's right. Aaron Rodgers went full Canadian tuxedo. However, 
That was the single greatest Canadian tuxedo ever. One that was modeled off of a Bing Crosby tux jacket from back in 1951. An incredible look. That right there, if you're watching on CBS Sports Network, is the damn truth. And here's another damn truth. Yes, Aaron Rodgers is worth this contract. And he's still underpaid. Yeah, I said it. In a true free market, you know, like the one that most of us work in, where an employer can pay you anything and where there is no salary cap, Rodgers would make more than 30 mil per year. He'd make 40, maybe 50, maybe even more than that because that's how much he means to an organization. If it were Jerry Jones or Stephen Ross who could write a check for whatever they wanted to get Rodgers, where would they stop? I guarantee it would not be at 30 mil. I know that. Wisco. Wisco, what's cracking? We are joined by head coach Jonathan Smith. Jonathan, it's so good to have you on. Good morning. How are you? Jim, I'm doing great. Appreciate being on. It is great to have you on. Listen, before we talk about this weekend and this season, we got to go back. I always love a guy who's got a good SoCal background. You're from Southern California. You went to Glendora High School. So first things first, what was life like for you growing up here? Oh, it was great. You know, a bunch of friends and Dodger games and Laker games. And shoot, even growing up, listening to you on local radio. and uh, Still got a bunch of family down there. Enjoy it when I can get back back when, uh, when I can. All right, I like it. So you said pretty early on that you had a plan. Quote, it would be to get a degree, play on a team, and coach high school football and teach history. That was the blueprint. So when did you first get the idea, and what was it about college football, or I should say coaching football, that made you want to dedicate your life to it? Well, I've always enjoyed the strategy and the camaraderie of such a big team. You know, I think it's an ultimate team sport. And so getting around it, you know, I like the strategy, the competition, and really cool, but then came and played college football. And I knew from that moment of college football, like, I want to be around it all my whole life. And so it's worked out to be able to do that. And now I interact with guys 18 to 22, compete on huge stages, and uh, do it as a group. Oregon State head football coach Jonathan Smith joining us. They've got Ohio State this weekend. You know, even your teammates back in high school talk about you as a quarterback and the fact that there'd be situations where you'd have to drive the team 80 yards for a TD, but you were always really, really calm. You'd be in the huddle talking about post-game dinners. How were you able to get into that place mentally in the biggest moments? You know, I think that, uh, again, we're just trying to make it fun, and you're playing with a bunch of your buddies. And so some of those tighter moments, I think sometimes it's good to lessen the – the magnitude of it and bring it back to real life like you're doing it with your friends and your buddies. And so we would, we would pop off a little bit in auto. Jonathan Smith joining us. Now, listen, you had this plan, but there were a lot of different ways you could have approached that plan. But your plan was to go to the biggest college football program you could get to and walk on. So you end up going to Oregon State. What was it about Oregon State and why did you want to go to a huge program? Why was that part of the plan? You know, I think that uh, I was ready to, you know, take a shot at the largest level I could get to. We were recruited by some smaller schools, but uh, the Pac-12 conference and Pac-10 at the time, this was an opportunity to get in that league. I didn't know a ton about Oregon State growing up, but then got in on a little visit, came up and saw the place and wanted to take a swing at it. Did Mike Riley's the head coach at the time, felt like he was genuinely giving me an opportunity to compete and, and possibly play down the road, and it just felt right. Oregon State head coach Jonathan Smith joins us. I'm glad you mentioned Mike Riley because he said that his first conversation with you was about coaching, that you were already preparing to be a coach, that in your free time you'd be reading books on coaching and leadership. So as you think back to that time, who were some of the coaches and leaders that you read about, and what was your biggest takeaway at that point? Oh, you know, I think uh, 
a bunch of different guys. I can remember the early conversation with Riley when what he's talking about in the recruiting process. Because I grew up a Trojan fan, you know, again, L.A. down there going to SC games. And his last year there, he was kind of rotating his two quarterbacks. And just kind of getting into the conversation, what's the logic behind that? Like, how do you go about it? And I've just always been intrigued by that stuff of talking to other coaches. And there's always different environments and situations to be going on. Again, going back to such a team sport with so many individuals on it. Uh, I just got a passion for it. Right, so on the way up, you've got this blueprint and you're working your plan and you want to become a head coach. Was there a clock in your head, so to speak? And like we thought, I want to be a head coach by this time. Or was it more a matter of the process and learning and growing and then just trusting that the opportunity would come along when it came along? Yeah, it totally trust in it. I didn't like, again, I've been at some great places and being an offensive coordinator, a couple spots, and I really enjoyed that. So I didn't have any type of timetable. Like, I have to be a head coach by this point. To be honest with you, I was at Washington the last four years. We were in a great time. We were winning some games, working with some great people. But this opportunity here, the fit for me in the Northwest, obviously going to place, um, I just felt this was something I couldn't pass up. And I'm I've been enjoying it so far. All right, so what's it like? What's it like to come back to Corvallis and your alma mater as the head coach? Is there any way to put into words how that feels and what that's like? You know, not totally. I, there are some times that it is, it is amazing in regards to just seeing some old friends, the former players coming back and being around. Uh, that has been great. But, you know, you're so busy with this thing, and you're working so hard and, and diving into these players and this staff that I surrounded myself with. Uh, there's not a lot of time that I just kind of sit back and say, wow, this is, this is so cool. You know, ever since I've started my podcast, people have been asking me for advice. Typically, it's what team to bet on this week. The truth is, I do not know who's going to win. But if you think you know, you have to check out my bookie. Remember this. Who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. This is why I tell my people to bet with my bookie. Trust me, they are the best bet this season. They've been in business for years. They have great reviews online and their mobile site is very easy to navigate. Lay down some cash, win big right now. I would only recommend a service to my listeners that's been good to me. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. And they have in-game live betting. The most rewarding player perks in the business. And for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join now and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome to activate that offer. Visit my bookie online today. That's M Y B O O K I E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account to get that bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. We're talking to Jonathan Smith, head coach of Oregon State. Now you're coming into a situation where the previous head coach stepped down in early October. The team goes on to finish 1-11, 0-9 in conference. And at the end of the season, the players talked about the emotional toll that it took on them. So how would you describe the team emotionally and psychologically when you first got there? Yeah, it was definitely tough. I mean, that was the circumstances of the year before with what you're saying, the head coach. But not only just the head coach leaving. I mean, there's a bunch of assistants that have rotated through. Obviously, a new head coach will be coming in, so he's going to have new assistants. And so it was tough on those guys. And I, I knew that coming in. And so we really tried to dive into them, build some trust. You know, we didn't get the opportunity to, you know, recruit them for a year and meet their family and sit in their home. And so we tried to do a lot of that and just kind of connecting, telling our stories as coaches and listening to their stories. 
because, again, ultimate team game, I think it's important to be able to trust each other. You see, how do you do that? That's such a key point to me because you're right. You and your staff did not go in there. You did not sit in their living rooms. You didn't build that trust. And then I think it's easy for fans to forget a lot of these guys are in their teens, their early 20s. Many of them might be living away from home for the first time in their lives. And then you got a situation where everything changes instantly, quickly. So how do you build stability and trust in that situation in a locker room? Yeah, I think you just honestly communicate. Again, I think you break them up in smaller groups, which we did, and just, again, tell their stories, where their background, why they chose Oregon State, what they like about Oregon State, what they haven't liked so far, and just feel like they got an open forum that people are here to listen to and get to know each other. Because we didn't want to just come in here and dive into schemes and tell them the expectations of this is how we're doing things. We wanted to make them feel like they're valued. Their story is important. We want to know it. We want to know each other. And uh, that's how we approached it. Right now, Chris Peterson is one of the guys you work for. He said, quote, you have to be comfortable being very uncomfortable. You're juggling a lot of balls. It's like the guillotine is ready to fall. I mean, that's really good advice. And that's a good point. What was he like to work for? And what was one of the biggest takeaways you had of your time with him? Yeah, he was great. Obviously, I worked for him for six years, learned a lot. Um, you know, boiling it down, the guy's got a vision. And he, he knows how he wants to go about things. And he's a very clear communicator with his vision. And it's a day-to-day thing. It's consistent. He's very clear. I think he does a great job of allowing his coaches to coach, set some big picture, again, that vision of how he wants it done. But he lets those guys go and do it. Um, The guy, you know, he's detailed. And uh, it was a great six years with him. All right, so you're 48 hours away from opening up against number 5 Ohio State. Listen, you've run out of the tunnel plenty of times in your career. Any idea what it's going to feel like when you do it for the first time as Oregon State's head coach? You know, I, I was, first time, I really don't exactly know how it'll feel. I know I'll be excited, and I'm, a, I'm proud of the group I'm taking out there. Again, these kids are a bunch of good kids, been through a lot. They've been working hard. So I'm going to be excited. Outside of that, I don't know I don't know what other emotions I'll have, but I am anxious to get started. I know you're concerned about your group, and you're only concerned about what you can control, but I wonder about Ohio State. They've had a lot of controversy, obviously, in the last month. How do you feel, though, about how your team has prepared for this game? You know, I think we prepared well. You know, we haven't uh, really thought much outside of ourselves in the preparation we've we've put forth the last month. Um, I think these guys are ready. We've been working. Yeah, we know what we're running into now. I mean, this is a great program, tradition, phenomenal players over there, and so we're going to be have, be on our A game to have a chance in this game to be able to you know tackle these guys and block these guys. But our our kids have been working. And so, like I said, we're excited about this competition and the opportunity that it presents. So then a final thought. You come to a situation like yours, one that you and I talked about, so you know exactly what you're getting into. You know there's not going to be any quick fixes. You're looking to build something that's going to last. So what are you looking to see from your players in the first few weeks to let you know that you are on the right path? Well, I want to see them compete for 60 minutes. I'll, I mean, honestly, we're going to go in. I don't care what, if we're up 14, down 14. I want to be swinging and competing for 60 minutes. We, I, you know, I was at Washington last year. I played these guys. They put a good two, three quarters together at times, but they couldn't finish things for 60 minutes. So, it really, if we can play compete for 60 minutes and we'll improve week in and week out, we'll be playing our best ball at the end of the year, and that's really the goal. He was a four-year starting quarterback at Oregon State in his first season as the Beavers head coach, and you've got Oregon State at number 5, Ohio State, Saturday, noon Eastern. Jonathan, great to have you in the jungle finally. Thank you very much. Good luck this weekend. Jim, I appreciate it. We need everything we can get in the jungle. Karma's going to help us out.
craft your masterpiece, and enjoy a slow smoke meal with a master-built smoker. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned professional, you'll find that just right smoker for your backyard cookout. It's easier and it tastes better than grilling. Load the smoker up with your favorite foods, set the time and temp, and walk away. Spend more time with your family and friends. It's available at Home Depot, Lowe's, Sam's Club, Academy, Bass Pro, and Cabela's. For more information, tips, and recipes, visit masterbuilt.com. All right, so Michael Kendricks. Michael Kendricks, the Cleveland Browns, insider trading, and cheesesteaks. Nope, not the worst game of Mad Libs ever. An actual story, and it's actually insane. Like completely and totally one of the most bizarre stories ever. It all broke yesterday when Kendricks apologized for being involved in insider trading. Now, I never thought that I'd be talking about that story, but his apology was one of the least weird things about that day. In fact, as apologies go, it's one of the better ones I've ever seen. In a public statement, Kendricks wrote, quote, I would like to apologize. Four years ago, I participated in insider trading. I deeply regret it. I invested money with a former friend of mine who I thought that I could trust and who I greatly admired. His background as a Harvard graduate and an employee of Goldman Sachs gave me a false sense of confidence. To this point, I had worked my tail off since I was five years old to become a football player. I was drawn in by the allure of being more than just a football player. While I didn't fully understand all of the details of the illegal trades, I knew it was wrong and I wholeheartedly regret my actions. And he went on to say that he has fully cooperated with authorities apologized to his coaches, the owners, teammates, the NFL, and fans, and his family, quote, who I failed in this, end quote. Now, that's how you apologize. Are you paying attention, Herb? This is how you apologize. He admitted that what he did was wrong. He admitted that he knew it was wrong. He admitted that he let people down. Now, maybe he was doing this in the hopes of leniency, Maybe he did so to mitigate the punishment that he knows is coming or is coming. But again, as apologies go, that one is strong. So exactly what did he do? Now, if you thought that talking about Aaron Rodgers' new contract had a CNBC feel to it, brace yourself because I'm about to get all mad money on it. Federal authorities accused Kendricks of working with former Goldman Sachs investment baker Damilare Sunoki in a series of insider trades. Along the way, now check this, Kendricks allegedly turned 80 grand into 1.2 mil. I mean, if somebody were to come to you and say, hey, if I had a way to turn 80 grand into over 1 mil, would you be interested in hearing about that? Probably so. A 1,500% return on his money. 1,500%. If you can get 5%, you're probably pretty happy, right? Anything over 5 with limited risk, you're probably pretty happy. This dude turned 1,500% and did it quickly. Nice work if you can get it, but you pretty much can't. And that's pretty much the point. Because according to authorities, Kendricks and Sunoki met at a party in 2013. And then in 2014, Kendricks opened up a brokerage account with 80 grand. They then proceeded to buy stock options on four companies, all of which this guy had insider information on because he was working with Goldman Sachs. So in exchange for this ridiculous growth in his portfolio, Kendricks 
is alleged to have given the other guy roughly ten grand in cash, tickets to Eagles games, and a trip to a music video shoot. This dude gets Kendricks, a 1,500% return on his dough in almost no time whatsoever, and what does he get in return? Ten gur and an invite to a video shoot. What the hell? Yo, man. Thanks for turning my 80 grand into 1.2 mil. Man, you are my dude. You're my dude. Hey, here, let me chip you off this $25 gift card for Starbucks. Nah, dude, really, keep it. Keep it. It's the least I can do for you. It's the least I can do after everything you've done for me. And here's where it gets really good. Because some of their text exchanges were in code. And Sunoki referred to the kickbacks as bread. Like in this alleged message, quote, IDK, when next I'm going to be able to see you, so try to have the bread if you can. The bread in NYC just isn't the same, and I really like my cheesesteaks with the stuff y'all have in Philly, end quote. There you have it. A great story, even better, because not only do you have an insider trading scheme with guys making crazy dough, but they're communicating in code, and the code is about cheesesteaks. I just wish that Kendricks had gone back and asked if he wanted those cheesesteaks from Gino Steaks or Pat's King of Steaks. But that wasn't the end of the excitement because a few hours after this all came out, the Browns released Kendricks. You know, like, bam, have some. And the reason they did so is because GM John Dorsey, in a statement released by the team, said, quote, Prior to signing Michael, we were informed that there was a financial situation that he had been involved in in 2014. We were told Michael had fully cooperated with investigators as a victim. From what was communicated at that time and based on the numerous questions we asked and further due diligence on our part, including checking with the league office, there was no information discovered that conveyed otherwise. End quote. All right, listen. If this guy lied to you, say it. But if you didn't do your due diligence, that's on you. The Browns. The Browns just broke off a guy for insider trading. The same Browns who've given Josh Gordon what? Second, third, fourth? Who knows how many chances? The Browns cut this guy. The same Browns who drafted Antonio Callaway this year, despite the fact that he had been suspended last year for involvement in a credit card fraud case, was cited for marijuana and drug equipment possession in May of 2017, and failed a drug test at the Combine. The same Callaway who was pulled over for marijuana possession and driving on a suspended license earlier this month. And his punishment? The team refused to take him out of a preseason game. So, And this is not... A Browns thing, exclusively. I mean, it's a Browns thing for sure, but not just a Browns thing. It's an NFL thing. Hit a woman, take a seat for a few games. Grope an Uber driver. Let's agree on three games and call it a day. Engage in insider trading. Get the hell out of here. Not in our league, criminal. Not in our league. I'm glad to see it, though. I'm glad to see it because for a minute... When I looked at the Browns, I thought that was a team that would tolerate anything. But I was wrong. They've got standards. If there's one thing the Cleveland Browns will not stand for, if there's one thing the Browns will not tolerate, and there's a line that you do not cross, that line is insider training.
No engaging in financial malfeasance. Not on my watch. (laughs) Not on Jimmy Haslam's watch. Haslam, the owner of the Browns. You know, the same Jimmy Haslam of Flying J Truck Stops, which has seen at least 17 former employees plead guilty or be convicted in a fraud scheme worth more than $56 million. Flying J agreed to pay $177 million in penalties and settlements. Hell, compared to that, Kendrick's crime is, well, cheesesteak money. Look, I'm not saying that insider trading is not a crime. Kendricks was greedy. He participated in something that he knew was wrong. It's not a victimless crime. It hurts the entire system and trust in the markets, but it's not a violent crime. Here's another thing. In white-collar crime, there's a lot of gray. I'm guessing there's a really good chance that at least one of you listening right now has participated in and may still be participating in something very similar. Hell, it would not surprise me to learn that one or more NFL owners have done something similar, and you would never know. Because aside from the really highly publicized cases like Martha Stewart and now Michael Kendricks, it goes unnoticed or it goes unpunished. Again, I'm not defending this guy. He was wrong. He admitted it quickly. So there's a chance. Because he admitted it quickly, there's a chance that he's guilty of more than we know. But what kind of a world are we living in where you can hit or grope a person and you get a timeout, but if you commit financial malfeasance, you're released in a matter of hours by an owner who's had more than his share of problems too. It's kind of rich, right? Everybody knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But let's take a moment and look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every single day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives every single year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet also. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking. Designate a sober driver or call a taxi. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing is for sure. You're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. Jack Flaherty is my guest. Jack, really nice to have you on. Jim, Good morning. How are you? Jim, how's it going? Good, Jack. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing hey. really good. Good. Listen, you're coming off a win on Tuesday. Let me start right there. You went seven innings. You allowed just one run against Pittsburgh. So, Jack, how good does it feel to not only be pitching in the postseason race, but to be coming up huge the way you are right now? Uh, you know, man, it just feels good uh, to go out there with these guys and be able to compete every day. Um, you know, every time I go out there, I'm just trying to put the team in a position to win the game and uh, make sure that when I come out of there, we got we got a chance to win it, um, no matter what's going on. But you know, it's fun. Right now, every game matters, and uh, every time we get a chance to go out there, we know that it's uh, that it's important. Wait, now, listen. Your preparation is already legendary. How much of what you're doing, Jack, every fifth day is about the work that you put in between your starts? And what kind of work do you do? And then, how does that show up when you pitch on game day? I say all of it. I say all of it from preparation. I just, I think that, uh, 
where I'm at right now comes from the preparation in between starts, making sure that, you know, I'm putting in the time to where I know that, that I'm ready and that no matter what happens that fifth day, if, uh, let's say things go poorly that fifth day, I know I've put in all the time that I can to be ready to be able to have my team back, my team's back on that day. Just, uh, you know, I think that that's where the prep work comes in is just me, uh, trying to make sure I'm ready and that I know once I come out of that game, I, I had done everything that I possibly could um, to be ready for that day. Jack Flaherty, my guest. Now, because of how dominant you've been and how big of a role you're playing right now in getting the team back to the postseason, there's this kind of tricky discussion about how much to use you down the stretch. So let me ask you, how does your arm feel right now? And I feel great. you got no worries about it. Body feels great. You know, but this is what we work for. This is what each and every one of us work for is to be ready for times like this. You know, no matter no matter what the situation is, we we, we work to be ready for work to be ready for a situation like this. And we never we never worry about um, you know use down the stretch or nothing like that. We're just you know we prepare for this. You know, Jack, I ran down some of your stats. I could keep doing it, but I don't need to run down the stats. I only need to mention the fact that Bob Gibson wanted to meet you. What was your reaction when you first heard that? And uh, hearing that was, was special. I think I had maybe talked to him for five minutes, maybe in the previous year, just uh, just running into him. But at that point, I had somebody mention it to me, and I was like, I, I knew he was around that day, but I, I didn't see him. And I saw on one of the monitors that he was sitting in the dugout, and I just said, whatever else I got to do right now is not as important as running outside and talking to that guy. So... I just got dressed, jumped at the opportunity, ran outside, got you know the 10, 15 minutes that I could get with him, um, and just really jumped at the opportunity. That's just that's something special when you know you get somebody like that who says, uh, "Hey, yeah, I'd really like some some time with you." Hey, Jack, especially if you do what you do. Listen, I've done this a long, long time. I've talked to almost everybody who matters in this game or in any sport. The first time I met Bob Gibson, you have to understand, this guy, man, this guy is so different. He has got such amazing presence. And I would imagine even for you and what you do, this guy is really, really intimidating. It's one thing for Bob Gibson to say, hey, I'd like to meet you. Quite another for Bob Gibson to say, I know who you are. I've been watching you. This is one of the greatest to ever do it. And he's saying, I know who you are, and I've been watching you. What was it like to hear that from him? That's a legend right there. That's a, there's, there's no getting around the fact that that's a legend. And, uh, you know, I introduced myself to him, but he goes, no, 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 I, I know who you are. I've been watching. And that was, uh, that was something like, dang, like, that's, uh, that's special because, you know, I, obviously I know who he is. That's, that's without a doubt. Like, you know, that's, that's an easy thing to know. But then for him to say something like that just was, uh, you know, kind of caught me off guard and, and whatnot. But, uh, it's it's something that it's something that was really cool to hear. But any time, you know, I just I got about 15 minutes with him, and uh, you know, I hope to have uh, a lot of time with him coming coming in the future. But you know, just that 15 minutes with him that he uh, that he let me have with him was, was special. Jack, last thought about that too. He he knows you. He wanted to meet you, and then on top of that, he wanted to talk to you about your slider. He loves your slider. So when Bob Gibson knows your repertoire and wants to talk to you about your pitches, you know that's something. We're talking to Jack Flaherty. Now, Jack, you're from Burbank. You played your high school ball at Harvard Westlake, which is not all that far from where we are. What do you remember about those days? What was high school ball like there? It was fun. <laughs> Put it simply, man, it was fun. I I, I loved playing there. 
that was one of the best times of my life. I mean, we had a great group of coaches, and, and most importantly, we had, we just had a really great group of guys there. Um, and, and it was just fun. I mean, we uh, each and every day we went out to practice, and I think that's where the prep work kind of started was, you know, our coach, he, he kind of believed in us, us working hard each and every day, um, making sure we're ready for game day and that. When it comes to game day, there's no situation we haven't put ourselves in. So, I think that's where the prep work starts. But uh, I was like, that was such a that was such a great time. It was so much fun there. You check. Listen, we keep talking about your prep work. The fact is, and I should have made this point: you're only 22. You're only 22, and yet your teammates and people around the league rave about your maturity, your professionalism. As an example, Bud Norris talks about the fact that you keep a journal and on your workouts, and you're constantly making notes on what you want to get done. So where does the attitude and the approach come from? Where did you learn that? Uh, man, that's just something It was it was kind of after my, uh, my 2016 season. Where I was in, I was in high A, and uh, I really struggled to be consistent. You know, I got off to a re- got off to a really bad start, and then had a really good stretch, and then struggled again, and then had a a good stretch to kind of end the season. And I just kind of found myself writing things in my uh, in my phone, like all my notes in my phone about you know what was feeling good, because I just could never remember like okay I pitched this day and it went well what what felt good on that day and I could never remember so I was like yeah I I need to write this stuff down just so I can kind of you know I can kind of remember what like what felt good what I was thinking that day what I did um and I think that's kind of where it started and I and I don't know who it was or somebody ever met but I, I think somebody somewhere along the line had mentioned it I'd mentioned like keeping a journal to to be able to remember things like that, and uh, but when it comes to that, I mean that's just something that I, I kind of have have started and I completely stuck with and have not not really gotten away from it. And I don't really see myself getting away from it any time. But for me, it's just preparation. It it uh it puts me in a position where I know going into a game where I'm at, what I'm what I uh what I'm comfortable with, what my keys are, what I need to do in order to be successful. And if I'm able to go out and do that, then most of the time good things are going to happen. But if they don't, I know I've done everything that I possibly could to be ready for that fifth day. And, uh, you know, just to, to put it all out there. And that's one thing that, that uh, Gibson told me was that I asked him, you know, he's going nine every time out. And he said, I'm just giving it all. I'm putting everything out there. You know, when I come off the mound, I'm not leaving anything out there. There's no saving energy. There's no conserving or nothing. It's just leave it all out there, and then, you know, most time good things are going to happen. Cardinals pitcher Jack Flaherty joining us for another moment. Hey, Jack, not to get too local with it, but since I grew up in Southern California and played Little League Baseball, I've got a couple of sons that play baseball. i got to know, man, where did you play Little League ball, and did you play travel ball growing up here? Of course you had to. Sherman Oaks Little League. Oh, dude! Me too. Where it all started. Me too. Sherman Oaks Little League. Fact. Yeah. I think you are the only big leaguer I've ever spoken to that played at Sherman Oaks Little League. I love that, man. What was that like? Man, that was... I uh, met some of my best friends growing up. <laughs> and still to this day, still to this day, best friends with some of those guys that I played with. Started with the same group of guys from when I was... I was, uh, I was seven... I think I was six, six or seven years old. I mean, grew up, started Little League there, and then 
first tournament I ever played in, I think, was Memorial Day weekend. Um, and it's funny. My mom always tells the story. She says, I have no idea, I had no idea what I was getting into because once that tournament happened and we played that weekend, there was no other weekend for the next whatever, however many years, 10 years, where she was free. We and, laugh uh, about that all know, the time. I, you're right, right, yeah, parents. You never know what you're getting into. And, I, I mean, I give her absolutely all the credit in the world. But, um, yeah, Sherman Huff, was, that was, uh, God, dude, that was that, a fun place to be. Jack, that is so awesome. You know, here in Southern California, like Encino Little League is a good league. West Hills out in the Valley is a good league. But Sherman Oaks, man, I can remember even as a kid when I played like Dick Amberg, not to date myself, and I'm much older than you, but Dick Amberg would come because his kid played in the league. Frank Robinson's kid played the league one year. Now, I don't have that same experience as you. I didn't play in some tournament and move on to much greater things. I am so <laughs> hyped and so pumped that you played Sherman Oaks Little League. That is the best. Yes. That is Sherman the best. Oaks is the best place to be at. Well, not only that, just so we're clear about this, in your bio, on your Twitter feed, you've got 818 forever. Did you keep mm-hmm. your 818 phone number? Are you still repping that? Still always 818. Always remember where you came from. 818 forever. Jack Flaherty, man, off to an amazing start, having a great first year. Jack, couldn't appreciate you anymore, and I am hyped, not only for this conversation and for your success, but the fact that it all started at Sherman Oaks Little League. That is the best. I'm pumped. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Stable wants you to stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Hurricane season is underway across most of the country, bringing extreme wind and rain with little to no warning. It is critical then to make sure your generators, power washers, chainsaws, john boats, and other emergency equipment are ready to use when you need them most. Whether you live in a high-impact area or not, planning in advance is a critical step in hurricane preparedness. Stable, America's number one fuel stabilizer and ethanol treatment, making sure your equipment starts when you need it the most. Very bizarre and graphic, all right? You know. I'll put it out there. It's 2018, so you know there's an app for literally everything. Everything. Whatever you need, whatever you want, there is an app for it. And, I mean, there are like millions of apps on all operating systems. So, as an example, if you're a dog owner looking for somebody to help you out with your mutt, you can always pull up the WAG app and get dog walking or dog sitting from supposed vetted dog lovers, right? I mean, people love their dogs. Love their dogs more than they love anything. You wouldn't want somebody coming near your dog that you didn't know unless you knew that they love dogs. It's been vetted, right? All right, so former Olympic swimmer and two-time gold medalist, Cleet Keller, is a WAG user. Or I should say, was a WAG user. Because I'm not so sure my man is going to trust the care of his best friend, Jimbo, to anybody ever again. Especially WAG. Not after what he told Fox 21 News in Colorado Springs. He said that he hired a female dog sitter from WAG. Take it away. He came home around 1 a.m. and he noticed two men without their shirts on sitting on his couch. This is what he says he saw next. There was an open bottle of personal lubricant and a camcorder on the end table. So it's pretty self-explanatory what was going on. Whoa, wait, what? What the hell kind of dog-sitting service or dog-sitting session is this? Did you hear what that two-time Olympian? No, no, check that. That two-time gold medalist just said, 
the hell kind of a dog sitting session is this? Alvin, so I'm clear. Can you roll that back one more time? He came home around 1 a.m. and he noticed two men without their shirts on sitting on this couch. This is what he says he saw next. There was an open bottle of personal lubricant and a camcorder on the end table. So it's pretty self-explanatory what was going on. Two dudes on his couch, shirtless, an open container of lubricant and a camcorder at 1 o'clock in the morning. To his point, it was pretty obvious what was going on. Now, remember, he did hire a female dog sitter. So where was she? We know the two dudes were there. Where was she? According to Keller, she was in the shower at 1 o'clock in the morning. Here's where this thing goes from really creepy and really gross to incredible and unbelievable. The local news got the dog sitter to go on record. Like, she agreed to do that. She agreed to talk about what happened. And you will not believe her side of the story. But to be completely honest, I didn't have WD-40, and my keys were stuck in my car, so I ended up grabbing what I had in my car from things that, you know, I do in my personal time, and I didn't think to put it back in my car. But just so I'm clear on this, she just went on record on tape, and said that her keys were jammed in her car and she did not have her WD-40. So she grabs something that she uses in her personal time, the lube, and then didn't think to put the lube back in the car. It's an amazing story. If your keys are jammed in your car, then why is the lube getting from the car to the house? Did you park in the living room, right? And furthermore, who's driving around with lube? And who's using it to get their keys back? And what about the two shirtless dudes who were hanging on the couch? And what about my man Keller, decorated Olympian, two-time gold medalist? Is he buying any of this at all? Cleet says that wasn't it, though. His sheets were also dirty, and as he looked closer... There's also what I can only assume are bodily fluids on the couch. It's probably a pretty good assumption, Cleet. This is all part of a news report, all right? So I'm not digging too hard for this. This is on record. Hey, Cleet, my man, your life, your house, your thing. Burn it all. Burn it all. In fact, Cleet... Check that. You grab Jimbo and you get the hell out of there. You call an agent. You list your house. You ever hear those stories about something really tragic that happens in a house? Somebody gets murdered in a house. Something goes down. And you always wonder how those houses sell. Like, who would buy a house like that? You ever see those news stories where, I mean, something really... I mean, it's a, Look, you know how life is. Life can be amazing and life can be horrific. Horrific things happen. They happen in people's homes. And then you don't want to stay in that house. And you have to sell that house. Why would somebody buy a house? You know, like the Menendez house. Why would you buy that house? Well, I'd say the same thing about Cleet, bro. I want to tell you to get the hell out of that house. Grab Jimbo and go as far away as you possibly can. But ain't nobody buying a house where that went down. I got no idea how you or anybody else is going to live in that house. Not after a dog sitter and a couple of randoms 
turned your house into some Ramada Inn. Speaking of Jimbo, speaking of Jimbo, man, where is the dog? Where is the dog in all of this? Fleet says his dog Jimbo was also locked in a bedroom, sitting in his own urine, acting terrified. It was just, just a total mess, and I can only imagine what poor Jimbo saw in there. I can only imagine what poor Jimbo saw in there. Man, I hate these people. I hate these people. Jimbo locked in a room. Hey, by the way, how the hell did she ever get past the screening process for that app? Yeah, here I am. All sit for Jimbo. Here I am. Oh, I think I'll bring a couple of my uh, boyfriends over. We'll party. Got the lube. Got the dudes. They're shirtless. I mean, bodily fluids in the bed. And poor Jimbo locked in a room. Hates a strong word. Man, I hate her and her friends. I hate this story. You, you hate to imagine what he saw. Bro, spare yourself the imagination. If there's lube in your house, a couple of shirtless guys on your couch, a dog sitter in the shower, soiled sheets on the floor, I think you know exactly what poor Jimbo saw. Jimbo, man. I love dogs, so I feel really badly for Jimbo. And Cleet. Man, that house will never be the same. Oh, but hey, hey, at least the dog sitter apologized. I'd like to apologize to him for making him feel like I violated his house because that wasn't my intention. I misinterpreted information, and I had guests over when I shouldn't have. Wow. Don't we talk about apologies all the time on this program? Listen to what she just said. I'm sorry. I misinterpreted information, and I had guests over. Remember when you were a kid? When you were a kid and your parents went out and there was a babysitter and she or he brought their boyfriend or girlfriend over after you went to sleep because, you know, your folks had a pretty nice house and a refrigerator full of food and more importantly, a bar full of liquor. Yeah, well, they never had their boyfriends over in the lube. (laughs) You misinterpreted information. Here's the info. This is my dog, Jimbo. Watch him while I am gone. Please do not have an orgy in my house, and I will see you when I get back. There's your info. How do you misinterpret that? How do you mix up Purina for, I don't know, Blue Buffalo? Having a couple of shirtless dudes over and leaving out the lube. How about this? How about not having two shirtless dudes over, and how about not bringing lube? How about you just watch the dog? And that apology should be in the form of a dry cleaning bill and a new couch for the next homeowner. Like I said, Cleet's got to get out of there. Dude's got to get out of there because now he lives in a brothel. For what it's worth, Wag suspended the dog sitter and is launching an investigation. That investigation will take about five seconds. Cleet, brother. You are a decorated Olympian, a great Olympian, a two-time gold medalist. Come to L.A., Cleet. Come to L.A. Dogs here are treated better than people here. You can bring them everywhere. Then you will not have to leave your pile of bricks to somebody to use like it's a cheap motel. Pour out some dog treats for Jimbo clones. And if I were you, I'd delete that WAG app. I'm sorry. 
I'm not here to take money off their table or to discourage you from using their app, but just delete it. Man, that's a horrible story. One person can ruin it for everybody, especially if that one person is her. We are joined by Bud Black. Bud, it's so great to have you back. Good morning, Bud. How are you? Jim, I'm well. Uh, great to be on. Bud, it's great to have you on, and I'm glad you're doing well, and the team looks great. Listen, late August, almost September, you're right in the middle of everything. You're coming off a 3-2 win over the Angels on Tuesday. Every win is important throughout the course of the year, obviously, but Bud, how much more special are those late one-run wins in August when you're in the middle of a postseason race? Those are big. Uh, they, they give you a great deal of momentum and confidence uh, you know, going into the next day. Uh, you know, when you win those hard ones, uh, and every game's hard as we get here into September, but the close ones, uh, you know, because you're on the, you know, you're on the edge, you know, every single pitch from about the sixth inning on and to come through, I mean, it just gives you a, you know, a great feeling when you walk in that clubhouse and you're giving high fives. It's, you know, it's what September's all about, man. And, uh, you know, we feel as though we're in a good spot. We're confident about where we are. Uh, a lot of guys went through it last year. We added some more guys who've been through it. So should be fun, man. I know the Dodgers, Diamondbacks, the wild card stuff is all real, uh, but we're ready. You laid that out perfectly. But Black, my guest, about one more thing. I mean, that win came after a tough loss to St. Louis and one of the Angels. And I know you've talked a lot about the emotions this time of year, but what did it show you in terms of that group's emotional toughness and grit that they could bounce back after some tough losses and turn it around that quickly? Yeah, I mean, that's that's our group. I think that, uh, you know, early in the year, the first half, you know, we lost a lot of tough ones and, and didn't win a lot of close ones. Uh, you know, sort of went the other way for a period of time, and then it, it sort of swung here in the second half where, you know, we're winning those games that, uh, you know, the extra innings or the uh, come-from-behind wins. Uh, you know, we're getting those done here in the second half, so that's a, you know, that's a good sign, but... You know, our group, pretty level-headed. LeMayu, Blackman, Arenado, Story, Gonzalez. You know, the veteran position players, uh, you know, they get it. They understand the, the turn-the-page theory. Can't get too high or too low. So, uh, you know, they sort of set the tone for uh, the rest of the group. And, you know, the young pitching, man, they're hanging in there, and they're, uh, they're doing their thing. And our veteran bullpen, I think, is going to have a really good month. Bud Black joining us. You know, at the win included another big performance from Kyle Freeland, who gave up only one run in six innings. He's now 12-7 and seven on the year, and he's put up some amazing numbers, but does not necessarily get the national run that I think that he deserves. You have worked with pitchers for a long, long time. What are people missing out when they don't talk about him? Well, I mean, you're right, first of all. I think that, you know, second-year player, uh, you know, Colorado Rocky pitcher, you know that doesn't uh, you know that doesn't really ring nationally. So uh, with Kyle, he's sort of done it under the radar, obviously. But he was in the conversation, uh, you know, talking to other managers and coaches uh, right around the All Star break about being an All Star. Uh, you know what he's done at home. Uh, as much as our hitters get bashed a little bit for their uh, home road splits, he's pitching great in, in in Coors Field and he's pitching great on the road. You know, I think he's in the you know at least uh, the top ten in the ERA, maybe top six. I haven't looked at it, you know, the last day or two. But you know, there's there a guy that just I mean, he competes as good as anybody I've seen. Uh, great intensity, and what I like from last year to this year is uh, you know more poise, 
Uh, last year, a young guy with a big arm, you know, came out firing, uh, more of a thrower than a pitcher. But in a short period of time, this guy's pitching, changing speeds, using his secondary pitches behind the count, locating the fastball, uh, realizing the big moment when he has to make a pitch and he's making it. So, I mean, a lot of good stuff going on with Freeland. Rockies manager Bud Black joining us. But I had Matt Holiday on the show last week, and that was after he made his return to the team. Knowing what he means to the fans and to the organization, man, how good did it feel to have him back with the club? Great reunion uh, for sure. You know, it's been in the works for about, you know, going back to, you know, the middle of the summer where, you know, Matt and our general manager got together and talked about the, the possibility of, of, of Matt, you know, making a late run here with us. And, you know, it worked out uh, that Matt, uh, you know, wanted to come back. And, and we looked at our club and the need for, you know, a right-handed bat, uh, you know, a presence, you know, on the bench when he doesn't start, The uh, you know, just the big physical you know, guy there that it's been through it with one swing can do some damage. We didn't have that guy. And now with uh, Matt aboard, uh, you know, that, <clears throat> that he wanted to come back and, and, and serve a certain role for us. It's awesome. Uh, he's been down this path of, of, you know, pennant race baseball. Uh, he's won a world series. Uh, he's been on good teams. Uh, he's got great leadership skills. So it all adds up, man. But, you know, I'm looking forward to it. He had a big homer the other night against Cardinals. Uh, you know, he's got a couple knocks uh, against left-handed starters. You could see him in there, uh, you know, getting three at-bats and staying current. But, you know, he's a great presence. And, you know, my gut is that there's going to be some big, big swings from Matt that's going to help us win. We're talking to Bud Block, you know, something else, but I would say you covered it. But when I spoke to him last week, and I've been talking to him my entire career or his entire career or both of our entire careers, man, I've just never heard the guy so excited and so pumped up and so enthusiastic. I mean, he's got a very different perspective, one that you can only have if you've played as long as he has and been through what he's been through. That presence in the clubhouse has got to be so big for you right now, the thing that he brings to it. No doubt. And his, uh, you know, at, at 38, you know, his enthusiasm is contagious. And I think that, you know, the guys, uh, you know, are, are seeing his excitement about being back. You know, he's at the park early. Uh, you know, he's talking about the opposing pitcher. He's talking about baseball. Uh, you know, all the things from, you know, from my chair and the coach's chair that, that he has is such good stuff. And I, I'm, I'm pumped for him. I think that, uh, you know, his, his family was in over the weekend, his brother, his dad. Uh, you know, he's very he's a great family man. His, his boys are around. I think everybody's engaged in, in, in here with Matt the last month. The fans were big when uh, when he came to the plate a couple times there in Coors Field. And, and I can see that it's only growing. So, man, I'm, I'm happy for him. He's pumped. It's a great reunion. And like I said, uh, I think the Rocky faithful are, are excited to have Matt back. We're talking to Bud Black for a few more moments. You know, Bud, you mentioned some of your vets, and you and I have gone through this conversation. I think this is the longest I've ever talked to you without bringing up Nolan Arenado, and it's not just him. I mean, it's him, it's Charlie Blackman, it's Trevor Story, who you mentioned. This list goes on and on. Do you feel like after the playoff run last year, this group is ready to take the next step this season? Yeah, I think so. You know, that group uh, hadn't been through it before with the exception of a young cargo. But, you know, Nolan, DJ, uh, Charlie, Trevor, uh, you know, that group hadn't been through it. You know, the original Rockies, uh, our younger pitchers who who were uh, developed through our system hadn't been through that. So I know 
Last year, uh, they were super excited to go through the race and get in the wild card game. Uh, this year, uh, the expectation is more. It really is. I think that uh, you know where we are, and and, and looking around in the in the locker room in the clubhouse, you know they see the potential that you know we can match up with the Dodgers, we can match up with the Cubs, the Diamondbacks, the you know the Braves. So, you know we're a, we're a good team, and and we can play with anybody. So uh, the expectation and the goal is to you know you know get it done. It's going to be hard. Uh, and there's no doubt about it because other teams, you know, have the same have the same goal. But you know, our guys feel good about who they are. You know, but one last thought: there's been a lot of talk about that bullpen this year, and maybe, I mean, maybe it has been quite what many thought that it would be or hoped it would be. You would know better than anybody else. How does that group look to you right now? And what kind of thoughts do you have about that? You know, uh, you know, about three weeks ago, I sensed that you know it was starting to come, it was starting to come, uh, you know, together. Uh, you know, as a group, and I think going through this now, this next month, it's going to be critical. Uh, you know, Davis has been pretty solid all year. There's been a couple of hiccups, like all closers, but he's still leading the National League in saves. All the internal numbers are good. Ottavino had a hiccup the other day, but he's been great all year. Uh, you know, getting O from Toronto, uh, Sone Juan, he's he's a big help. McGee's better. Uh, you know, we need we need Shaw and we need Russin. Uh, this last month because Brian Shaw's been there. Uh, he's done it for years. This year's been tough, but I sense when it gets hot here in, in September and there's crises, I think Brian will be there for us along with Russ. And so if we get those six guys going well and our starters, uh, you know, we think going in every game, you know, we can, we can pitch with whoever and out pitch somebody. So it's going to be critical, no doubt about it. But I've, I sense that our guys are physically and mentally in as good a spot as a bullpen as we've, as we've been in all year. And you've got that group in a great spot. Only a half game out of first in the NL West, one game out of the wild card. Colorado is at San Diego tonight. Their skipper, Bud Block, my guest. Buddy, I appreciate you. You know that. Thanks so much for coming on, Bud. Great to have you. Great to get caught up, and good luck with everything, Bud. Jim, always a pleasure. Uh, loved watching you over the years, obviously, and, man, uh, one thing that I love, I love those guys who pass the test of time, and you've done it, pal. Good going. Mike in Indy. Mikey De La Creme. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, no much, Rome. It's good to be back again. I uh, know Bodie's my guy, but let's make sure to keep this smoker thing merit-based. And if he really loved you, Jim, wouldn't he at least put a little bit of a call together for you? Speaking of merit-based, as I'm approaching 6,000 followers on Twitter, I think I'm ready to follow my sixth person. I've kept my follow list to five so far, you, Alvy, Whelan, Stu, and KB. So naturally, the new producers and the crew want to follow. But I'm not going to just open the floodgates on this thing. It's going to be a merit-based assessment to see who deserves it more between Hawk and Arnold so my follower ratio doesn't get out of whack. Both of these guys have been pandering for a follow on a daily basis They'll both hit me up around 2.55 Eastern like clockwork, pandering for a follow. Going forward, I'll be assessing their show contributions and Twitter contributions, so make sure to put your best feet forward, fellas. May the best man win, or in this case, the least worst. War irate Craig using a master-built smoker as a sauna, and I'm out. Tanner in St. Augustine. Hey, Tanner, what's up? How are you? Jim, thank you. Thank you. For the vine and hawk thank you as well you know waiting in the call queue for a chance to get on air is kind of like sitting on ice in green bay waiting for that sturgeon to swim by you got to be patient 
You can feel me, Platsky. And as far as the uh, master built goes, I'm not exactly sure how to compete with the likes of Andy and Rockland with that incredible content, or especially Jeff and Richmond, unless I'm ready to totally ruin my vocal cords with a bunch of lame celebrity impersonations. What a spaz. Me, Jim, I just have a couple of quick takes. Going to try not to suck like Baylor. First off, Jerry Jones. Listen, I know you bought your way into the Hall of Fame, but for the last time, please just leave football alone. The only weirder science than your player safety proposal of 18 games, whether you want to admit it or not, is the work you had done on your grill. I know the clones liked you a lot better back in the day when all you did was host that HBO series, Tales from the Crypt. But personally, I thought your best work was when you toured with Jeff Dunham. I kill you. Now, that was a funny bit, unlike that circus you run in Dallas. And, Jim, you know, congrats on the podcast anniversary. Now, that's good content. Clones, if you haven't already, you must give it a listen. Speaking of the podcast, I want to take this opportunity, if I can, to take a quick swing at some of the lower-hanging jungle fruit. Yes, long. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Dan Lesks tweets, Tanner should have sent you a smoker after that call. Listen, <laughs> if Tanner sent me a smoker, right? And Denless has got a pretty good point. However, if you all had to send me a smoker after every bad call, there are not, there are not enough smokers on this planet to make that work. Now, what a great deal that would be. There's not enough real estate in California for me to house all those uh, smokers. Come on. They'd be stacked to the moon. Good night now! We've got all the news right here. I'm going to stop you right there. I see you about to settle on a day-old donut for breakfast. Well, this is a chick intervention. Because McChicken Biscuits and Chicken McGriddles are now at McDonald's. So just hit that drive through and change your life. For breakfast, you got this. Wake up breakfast. Say good morning to McChicken for breakfast. Right now at your local McDonald's, you can mix and match two Chicken McGriddles or McChicken Biscuits for just $3. Price and participation may vary at participating McDonald's for a limited time.